making the short talk to get action. A famous English bishop during World War I spoke to the troops at Camp Upton. They were on their way to the trenches. Only a very small percentage of them had any adequate idea why they were being sent. I know. I questioned them. Yet, the Lord Bishop talked to these men about international amity and Serbia's right to a place in the sun. Why, half of them did not know whether Serbia was a town or a disease. He might as well have delivered a learned disquisition on the nebular hypotheses. However, not a single trooper left the hall while he was speaking. Military police were stationed at every exit to prevent their escape. I do not wish to belittle the bishop. He was every inch a scholar, and before a body of churchmen, he would probably have been more powerful. But he failed with these soldiers, and he failed utterly. Why? He evidently knew neither the precise purpose of his talk nor how to accomplish it. What do we mean by the purpose of a talk? Just this. Every talk, regardless of whether the speaker realizes it or not, has one of four major goals. What are they? First, to persuade or get action. Number two, to inform. Number three, to impress and convince. Number four, to entertain. Let us illustrate these by a series of concrete examples from Abraham Lincoln's speaking career. Few people know that Lincoln once invented and patented a device for lifting stranded boats off sandbars and other obstructions. He worked in a mechanic's shop near his law office, making a model of his apparatus. When friends came to his office to view the model, he took no end of pains to explain it. The main purpose of those explanations was to inform. When he delivered his immortal oration at Gettysburg, when he gave his first and second inaugural addresses, when Henry Clay died and Lincoln delivered a eulogy on his life, on all these occasions, Lincoln's main purpose was to impress and convince. In his talks to juries, he tried to win favorable decisions. In his political talks, he tried to win votes. His purpose, then, was action. Two years before he was elected president, Lincoln prepared a lecture on inventions. His purpose was to entertain. At least, that should have been his goal, but he was evidently not very successful in attaining it. His career as a popular lecturer was, in fact, a distinct disappointment. In one town, not a person came to hear him. But he succeeded notably in his other speeches, some of which have become classics of human utterance. Why? Largely because in those instances, he knew his goal and he knew how to achieve it. Because so many speakers fail to line up their purpose with the purpose of the meeting at which they are speaking, they often flounder and come to grief. For example, a United States congressman was once hooted and hissed and forced to leave the stage of the old New York Hippodrome because he had, unconsciously, no doubt, but nevertheless, unwisely, chosen to make an informative talk. The crowd did not want to be instructed. They wanted to be entertained. They listened to him patiently, politely, for 10 minutes, a quarter of an hour, hoping the performance would come to a rapid end. But it didn't. He rambled on and on 
patience snapped. The audience would not stand for more. Someone began to cheer ironically. Others took it up. In a moment, a thousand people were whistling and shouting. The speaker, obtuse and incapable as he was of sensing the temper of his audience, had the bad taste to continue. That aroused them. A battle was on. Their impatience mounted to ire. They determined to silence him. Louder and louder grew their storm of protest. Finally, the roar of it, the anger of it, drowned his words. He could not have been hurt to any feet away. So he was forced to give up, acknowledge defeat, and retire in humiliation. Profit by his example. That the purpose of your talk to the audience and the occasion. If the congressman had decided in advance whether his goal of informing the audience would fit the goal of the audience in coming to the political rally, he would not have met with disaster. Choose one of the four purposes only after you have analyzed the audience and the occasion which brings them together. To give you guidance in the important area of speech construction, this entire episode is devoted to the short talk to get action. The next three episodes will be devoted to the other major speech purposes, to inform, to impress and convince, and to entertain. Each purpose demands a different organizational pattern of treatment. Each has its own stumbling blocks that must be hurdled. First, let's get down to the brass tacks of organizing our talks to get the audience to act. Is there some method of marshalling our material so that we will have the best chance for successful follow-through on what we ask the audience to do? Or is it just a matter of hit-and-miss tactics? I remember discussing this subject with my associates back in the 30s when my classes were beginning to catch on all over the country. Because of the size of our groups, we were using a two-minute limit on the talks given by class members. This limitation did not affect the talk when the purpose of the speaker was merely to entertain or inform. But when we came to the talk to actuate, that was something else. The talk to get action just didn't get off the ground when we used the old system of introduction, body, and conclusion. The organizational pattern followed by speakers since Aristotle. Something new and different was obviously needed to provide us with a surefire method of obtaining results in a two-minute talk designed to get action from the listeners. We held meetings in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. We appealed to all our instructors, many of them on the faculties of speech departments in some of our most respected universities. Others were men who held key posts in business administration. Some were from the rapidly expanding field of advertising and promotion. From this amalgam of background and brains, we hoped to get a new approach to speech organization, one that would be streamlined and one that would reflect our age's need for a psychological as well as a logical method for influencing the listener to act. We were not disappointed. From those discussions came the magic formula of speech construction. We began using it in our classes and we have been using it ever since. What is the magic formula? Simply this. Start your talk by giving us the details of your example. An incident that graphically illustrates the main idea you wish to get across. Second, in specific clear-cut terms, give your point, tell exactly what you want your audience to do, 
And third, give your reason. That is, highlight the advantage or benefit to be gained by the listener when he does what you ask him to do. This is a formula highly suited to our swift-paced way of life. Speakers can no longer afford to indulge in long, leisurely introductions. Audiences are composed of busy people who want whatever the speaker has to say in straightforward language. They are accustomed to the digested, boiled-down type of journalism that presents the facts straight from the shoulder. They are exposed to hard-driving Madison Avenue advertising that shoots the message in forceful, clear terms from signboard, television screen, magazine, and newspaper. Every word is measured, and nothing is wasted. By using the magic formula, you can be certain of gaining attention and focusing it upon the main point of your odd message. It cautions against indulgence in vapid opening remarks such as, I didn't have time to prepare this stuff very well, or when your chairman asked me to talk on this subject, I wondered why he selected me. Audiences are not interested in apologies or excuses, real or simulated. They want action. In the magic formula, you give them action from the opening word. The formula is idea for short talks because it is based upon a certain amount of suspense. The listener is caught up in the story you are relating, but he is not aware of what the point of your talk is until near the end of the two or three minute period. In cases where demands were made upon the audience, this is almost necessary for success. No speaker who wants his audience to dig deep in their pocketbooks for a cause, no matter how worthy, will get very far by starting like this. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to collect $5 from each of you. It would be a scramble for the exits, but if the speaker describes his visit to the children's hospital, where he saw a particularly pungent case of need, a little child who lacked financial help for an operation in a distant hospital, and then asks for contributions, the chances of getting support from his audience would be immeasurably enhanced. It is the story, the example, that prepares the way for the desired action. Note how the incident example is used by this Leland Stowe to predispose his audience to support the United Nations appeal for children. I pray that I'll never have to do it again. Can there be anything much worse than to put only a peanut between a child and a death? I hope you'll never have to do it and live with the memory of it afterward. If you had heard their voices and seen their eyes, on that January day in the bombs card workers district of Athens, yet all I had left was a half-bound can of peanuts. As I struggled to open it, dozens of ragged kids held me, and a voice of frantically clawing bodies. Scores of mothers, babes in their arms, pushed and fought to get within arm's reach. They held their babies out toward me, tying hands of skin and bone stretched convulsively. I tried to make every peanut count. In their frenzy, they nearly swept me off my feet. Nothing but hundreds of hands, begging hands, clutching hands, despairing hands, all of them pitifully little hands. One salted peanut here and one peanut there. Six peanuts knocked from my fingers and a savage scramble of emaciated bodies at my feet. Another peanut here and another peanut there. 
hundreds of hands reaching and pleading, hundreds of eyes with the light of hope flickering out. I stood there helpless, an empty blue can in my hand. Yes, I hope it will never happen to you. The magic formula can be used also in writing business letters and giving instructions to fellow employees and subordinates. Mothers can use it when motivating their children, and children will find it useful when appealing to their parents for a favor or privilege. You will find it a, a psychological tool that can be used to get your ideas across to others every day of your life. Even in advertising, the magic formula is used every day. EverReady Batteries recently ran a series of radio and television commercials built upon this formula. In the example step, the announcer told of someone's experience of being trapped. For instance, in an overturned car late at night, after giving the graphic details of the accident, he then called upon the victim to finish the story by telling how the beams of the flashlight powered by EverReady Batteries brought help in time. Then, the announcer went on to the point and reason. Buy EverReady batteries and you may survive a similar emergency. These stories were all true experiences out of the EverReady battery company's files. I don't know how many EverReady batteries this particular advertising series sold, but I do know that the magic formula is an effective method of presenting what you want an audience to do or to avoid. Let us take up the steps one at a time.